Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Judy Ills. Uh, she's a professor in the Division of Neurology in the Department of Medicine uh, at the University of British Columbia. And I have Anthony Hannon. Uh, he's a professor, uh, part of the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health in Melbourne, Australia. So welcome both of you. We're going to talk about the uh, the International Brain Initiative. Thanks for having us, Richard. Thank you, Rich. Excellent. Well, uh, first, what what is the International Brain Initiative? And then I want to ask you both about your uh, background and how you came to be a part of it. Judy, would you like to go first? Oh, I'd be happy to, Tony. Thank you. So, Richard, uh, and your to your listeners, the International Brain Initiative is a coalition of major national initiatives. Uh, that has existed since roughly 2016 with the goal of coming together, uh, uniting diverse knowledges and ambitions across the world to really advance uh, neuroscience in a border-free, geopolitically free world. Um, and we have um, uh, we've been evolving over the past years uh, largely with funding from uh, the United States, the Kavli Foundation, uh, as well as other initiatives, including uh, those from Japan, China, and South Korea. Australia and my own country, Canada, came on board about uh, three years or so. And we have been uh, e really evolving in, in many different ways. Uh, much of our focus to date has been on uh, workshops and meetings where we gather through a series of working groups that we can talk about through this podcast to coordinate major priority areas across the initiatives, the nationally funded initiatives, uh, exchange ideas, exchange early career investigators, give them opportunities to learn, uh, reach out to the public, um, and also work, as, work in very focused areas of neuroscience that really transcend borders 
that I think Tony will uh, talk with you about. Okay, go ahead, Tony. Yes, I'd just add to that, Europe is represented as well with this Human Brain Project, which is transforming into e-brains. So it's very exciting times in international neuroscience. And one of the working groups I've been involved in of the International Brain Initiative is around data standards and governance. And so one of the things that's changing, not just in neuroscience, but I think all of science, is this idea of big data. The capacity, not just with computer technology, but with other technologies. In the case of neuroscience, it's things like human brain imaging, but also other forms of cellular imaging, electrophysiology, a lot of other technologies, including molecular and genomic technologies, have meant that never before have we been able to generate so much data on, for example, the human body, but in particular, the human brain. So this becomes ever more important as governments around the world, importantly, spend billions of dollars on brain research that we really internationally make the most of that data. And in order to make the most of that data, we need to share it internationally. And although that sounds easy, there are many challenges to that in terms of uh, the logistics of data sharing, um, the governance of data sharing, there's certain kinds of human data that obviously can't be easily shared and, and can't have personal details attached to it. And there are regulations about sharing data between countries that have to be overcome. And that's one area where the International Brain Initiative has been important in bringing together neuroscientists from all these different countries and regions in important initiatives such as data standards and governance. And so I might hand back to Judy because she's been a driver uh, in an area called neuroethics. And I think this might be one area that might be particularly interesting to your readers because it touches on the lives of, of all of it. Okay. Um, question. So what I know there's a pressure to publish. So in a group, um, if they share data, is there a fear that, oh, if I share this data, then they might uh, get better results than us and publish ahead of us and you know push us out of the way? What are some of the other obstacles, the human ones to doing this? Yeah, that's a good question, Richard. And so there are multiple possibilities. Obviously, publication is very important for scientists, as is the peer review process. So in many cases, this data is being shared at the time of publication in international journals. So authors can wait until they have published in an international journal before they start sharing, and that's entirely acceptable. But the idea is at the point of publication, all of the data, including what we call metadata, the kind of data that's not obvious in the journal publication, but is data associated and primary data associated with um, the original findings that other scientists are able to access that metadata as well as other forms of published data. And in many cases, in many projects, the scientists do release their data prior to publication. In these days, they might publish as a, a preprint before they publish the peer-reviewed version in an international journal. So these are issues for scientists, but they're not um, issues that can't be overcome because they can either wait until peer-reviewed publication or they might um, release a preprinter and release the data at that stage. And Judy, what's your experience here? Yeah, you know, I'll jump in and say that um, 
you know, publication, sort of the sine qua non of publication was is perhaps a thing of the past. So publications are still important, but what we're really seeing and what the IBI is enabling is consortia of people across international borders doing research together, planning research together, uh, involving patients in research very early on in the process, and through this really open way, uh, developing data that are then accessible, not just by one group, by many groups, and enabling many groups to publish together. You know, there's also the patent scheme that uh, has been alive uh, for a very long time. Different countries have different patent regulations. And this is also a place where the IBI is able to weigh in and both encourage uh, the protections of intellectual property where appropriate, but also encourage uh, a greater openness to neuroscience through what we we call the open neuroscience movement. Um, and in fact, open neuroscience is um, a very high priority for the Canadian brain research strategy, of which I'm also a part. I, but you know, just going back to um, Tony's comments about uh, data standards and governance, it really is. We have seven working groups under the IBI now. Data standards and governance is really a a huge one and has been from the very beginning, both in the first phase of the IBI and now in its second generation that Tony and I are leading. And it's fundamental to the other working groups. So consider how important it is for harmonized data and governance for consortia of people doing brain mapping, people interested in cross-cultural issues, people interested in understanding the emotional brain, everything from what brain maps might uh, tell us all the way through epigenetics, tools and technology, what tools and technologies do we need to be able to harmonize data, ensure reliability and authentic data mining and dissemination. And also in the area of neuroethics uh, that Tony referred to, our working group is particularly interested in the protections, um, and that is both uh, personal protections and scientific protections around for example, neuropsychiatric data that may come easily from highly vulnerable or marginalized populations. And the means of ensuring the safety of those data for everyone is really essential. So the IBI really pulls all these pieces together under separate themes, but also seems that themes that are highly coordinated among each other. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. 
So what are some of the particular initiatives that uh, you think will be very useful to, you know, to people, not just science, to people that it will benefit? Well, I think, Tony, if, if I may just jump in some of the topics that we've just been talking about. So let's begin with a highly vulnerable populations, individuals suffering from both the burden of neurologic or mental health disorders. They are represented heavily in all the working groups uh, of the IBI. And the more we're able to work across borders, really in a border-free way, coordinate and leverage our skills, our facilities, and our technologies, our data, ultimately, um, the better healthcare we'll be able to bring to these individuals and really to the networks around them. The more we understand about how the brain is developing, for example, from, from birth and all the way through adulthood and through the aging process, again, the better we'll be able to bring uh, interventions to everyone along the lifespan, uh, improve quality of life, and reduce the burden of disease. And just as a third example, our cross-cultural working group has just received a grant from the Brochet Foundation in Switzerland to specifically focus on indigenous ways of knowing and exchanging and learning uh, about mind and brain, and to bring these new expanded, at least expanded views for the European population, bring all bring these different knowledges together and really expand the way that everybody thinks about brain and mental health. Tony, over to you for further comment. Thank you, Judy. That was excellent. What I would add is that this burden of brain disorders, in particular neurological and psychiatric disorders that Judy mentioned, is now the largest burden of disease of any illnesses uh, across all of health and medicine, and it's growing. And increasingly, we can see, thanks to the power of science, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic dramatically demonstrated the power of science, whereby with the new virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, within one year, multiple vaccines had been generated. And they didn't come out of thin air. They came out of decades, 50 years, 100 years of investment in fundamental science, in fundamental RNA biology, fundamental immunology, and vaccinology. But the next challenge, and the challenges we know that are facing uh, humans over the coming decades, many of them relate to the, the brain. We know for many around the world, the pandemic was incredibly stressful. There's evidence of an increased mental health burden post-pandemic, which was already escalating anyway. So we know a number of major brain disorders are on the rise. Brain disorders around aging related to dementia, for example, relate to, to the nature of the, the aging population. If you don't die of heart disease or cancer, then your risk of dementia, for example, goes up with each year. So what the IBI can deliver as part of what we refer to as this international brain movement is the hope that we can prevent, treat, and cure a range of devastating neurological and psychiatric disorders. But in order to do that, we have to take these enormous and exciting data from around the world and bring it together to share it, um, to understand it, and um, to really accelerate this neuroscience as quickly as possible while with neuroethics protecting people's rights and, and making it to the greatest benefit 
of uh, all people without exposing them to harms. You know, indeed, the the societal uh, issues are so important. You know, and I'll just layer on, Tony, you mentioned COVID. Just think about the incidence of long COVID now across our populations. It's upwards of 20%. People, you know, suffering from begin what begins as a respiratory disease with true cognitive effects, uh, you know, relentless fatigue, what people are calling cognitive fog, slowing of information processing. You know, these are issues that going back to data sharing and governance, the more we can information we can capture across our borders around what long COVID looks like, how it's being dealt with through our different healthcare systems, even through the lens of our different cultures, will really inform the way that we manage uh, this virus that, as we all, all know, is is probably here to stay. Yeah, in terms of the brain initiatives, um, what, what ones are you guys most excited about? You know, what particular initiatives are you looking forward to? Well, I'm happy to, to speak to that. Uh, Judy, I'll speak first, if you like, in terms of uh, the International Brain Initiative brings together these brain initiatives from all over the world. So we're not biased to a particular country or regional brain initiative, but uh, within the International Brain Initiative, these working groups, I think they all have their place. Obviously, the data standards and governance is crucial across all areas of neuroscience in terms of how we share data and how we make the most of international neuroscience data. I think neuroethics is becoming more important than ever in terms of how we um, deal with new technologies, including artificial intelligence, which is obviously very topical. And my view on that would be that it's a technology that should not be feared. But I like to use the analogy of a new technology. You think of it as a stone and, and you've got a stone sitting there. And until a human picks up that stone, um, they might choose to pick it up and throw it at someone, but they might choose to pick it up and, and grind grain and make flour and make food and do something useful and, and important. And until a human interacts with technology, it doesn't really have a valence. It's neither good nor bad. So I, I think with neuroethics, it it's puts us in a position to take these wonderful technologies which have the capacity to prevent, treat and cure a whole range of brain disorders and just generally increase brain health and, and potentially increase the way in which individuals maximize their, their potential without exposing individuals to harm. So I think artificial intelligence is an example whereby we need international cooperation. We need you know, the scientists to help the, uh, the politicians and government and the legal systems to stay ahead of the game in terms of these technologies. Thanks, Tony. That's exactly right. So I'm, I'm just going to, if Richard will allow us to articulate the working groups very clearly, just one after the other. And then I just want to perhaps make a comment also about the kind of infrastructure that you and I, with our executive committee, have built around the brain initiatives to enable the work of the working groups, as well as some other structures. So the working groups are data standards and governance, brain mapping, cross-cultural issues, emotional brain education and outreach, tools and technology, and neuroethics. And these are just the start. We are we welcome ideas for new working groups um, from uh, the countries that currently have major brain initiatives, the, those that we've articulated already, the seven that we've articulated, 
but also we have now opened up a structure, really a partner's category uh, to the IBI, and we welcome new partners to the table. It's very clear that not every country, every region of the world can afford to have a major brain initiative. And so what we were trying to do is open the borders of the IBI uh, to new partners, whether they're from Latin America, northern portions of Europe, um, sub-Sahara Africa, so that we can uh, have even deeper layers of coordination and collaboration among us. The brain initiative, the seven brain initiatives, are the enablers. They're the, they're the first to the table. They bear significant amounts of funding as a collective, some bigger and some smaller among us, but we, we are the enablers. And beyond that, beyond the enabling, our goals are to facilitate a scientific exchange, research across uh, initiatives, uh, education and outreach, both um, within the initiative countries, as well as this new uh, partner category that we are very excited to be populating today. Are there any um, initiatives that are close to a breakthrough that you're going to be announcing in the near future or, you know, order in which the public may see the results of these? I'm happy to speak to that. I think in terms of the, the broad work of uh, the International Brain Initiative, I think it cuts across all areas of neuroscience. So science is a, a hugely collective uh, profession, and we're always sharing information through through publication, through conferences where scientists interact. So I think IBI is primarily a catalyst for neuroscience at a global scale, thinking increasingly whereby... Okay. Uh, editors will just piece this together with the previous one. But yeah, uh, Tony and Judy, please, if you would tell me, um, if you can, what, what initiatives maybe are close to a breakthrough that you can talk about uh, some of the results that, that will be coming maybe in this next year, just to give people um, you know something exciting to look forward to? And I asked about um, how does the public hear about what we do? So we'll let Tony go first. Yes, yeah, so on the, the first question, I see IBI as a catalyst for global neuroscience. And the example is is data standards and governance. The idea that some of the wealthier countries in the world and participants that are able to contribute large amounts of data through new technologies and very active neuroscience programs, if we can facilitate data sharing around the world, there are other countries that have perhaps advantages in human resources where they have large populations and growing populations of scientists and, and data analysts who can help make the most of these enormous data sets, which go way beyond one laboratory or one research group and really need to be analyzed and studied through these international consortia. And I think that is one way in which international collaboration and interaction is more important than ever. Because in the past, when you think, you know, 100 years ago, uh, the earlier days of neuroscience, there were relatively small amounts of data generated by relatively small labs that could be entirely analyzed within those laboratories. And collaboration between laboratories wasn't so relevant or important back then. 
it, it could be very much an individual or small lab pursuit. But those days are changing. And as Judy mentioned before, these international consortia are important. And they're important outside of neuroscience, of course. There's been great progress made, for example, in the Human Genome Project, which over 20 years ago delivered the first sequence of the human genome. And that field has continued to accelerate through international collaboration, where they're now moving to a pan-genome, where you're trying to integrate genomes from all over the world to get a sense of the variance in the human genome, but also the function of, of those 3 billion letters of DNA and, and the over 20,000 genes within them. So there's analogies with neuroscience, just as international genetics and genomics has collaborated increasingly. International neuroscience is collaborating because the brain is the most complex thing we're aware of in the known universe. These 100 billion neurons or so on and the 100 billion other cells in the brain, there's extraordinary complexity here. We really are at the very earliest stages of understanding things like brain development and function and how it gives rise to thoughts, emotions, movements, uh, behaviors. We're really at the start of this process. And so it, as I tell students doing neuroscience in the early 21st century is like doing physics was in the early 20th century. Neuroscience is the great scientific frontier. And it's a great frontier of medicine as well, as we mentioned before, because of the the enormous and growing burden of neurological and psychiatric disorders. There's no more important area of science or medicine than neuroscience. Judy, would you like to add anything to that? I would. Tony, one thing that we have been uh, talking about in one of the very exciting meetings we had just this past week uh, was with patient uh, representative groups, advocacy organizations. And I really see the IBI creating a, a working group around, I might call it patient engagement or advocacy. I, perhaps it becomes part of our education and outreach working group or it becomes its own working group where we really involve both leadership of advocacy organizations and people with lived experience with uh, brain and mental health disorders to uh, come on board and help shape the kinds of thinking that the various initiatives and working groups are engaged in to uh, conduct the research that they're doing and to uh, drive the questions that they're asking. And we've really learned over the past years that involving the voices of people with lived experience, their values, their priorities, the way they make decisions about quality of life and the treatments they pursue and the clinical trials in which they might participate can be very different from those of us on the ground on the research side or even on the health provision side. And so I'm really looking forward to um, building out an arm of the International Brain Initiative that uh, has a patient-focused arm and that really helps us to see the world, global neuroscience, through their eyes as well as those that we we naturally look at the world through in our through in our academic and institutional settings. Richard, back over to you. Yeah. So I guess 
you know, to, to close out, uh, where can people find out more about Brain Initiative? And if they're connected to a university or other research organization, uh, how can they find out the criteria for joining it if they wish to? Thank you, Richard. We have an excellent website. So if they uh, do an internet search for the International Brain Initiative, they will find our website and a lot of important details there. And that can be a, a conduit to reaching out and getting involved. So there's uh, much of the information needed there. And that also has links to individual brain initiatives in individual countries and regions where uh, there's opportunities for individuals to also, you know, lobby their governments to increase brain research funding within their own countries, both through governments, but also through philanthropy, because ultimately neuroscience is underfunded relative to its importance all over the world. And and so part of this international brain movement and the international brain initiative is actually increasing awareness and, and increasing funding for neuroscience because we have particularly no treatments for the vast majority of brain disorders. Judy. Oh, just to say, in, indeed, our website is simple to find. It's internationalbraininitiative.org. Um, we're also, the IBI is also linked to in addition to the Canadian Brain Research Strategy, for example, neuroethicscanada.ca also has links to the IBI, and as does uh, the Brain Initiative Alliance through, for example, Brain in the United States, Australia, uh, eBrains, China Brain Project, Japan Minds. Really, all the initiatives have their own websites for regional information. Um, and then for your coordinated information across the organizational structure, we are really, we're a generation two now. We are building this house and we are building it together. And the the more that we can reach out to the public and the more that the public reaches out to us, the better we'll be able to build this house in a very solid way. And it will have all the rooms it needs to have. Uh, to accommodate priorities and, and values of people who are interested in knowing about us and working with us and assisting us to grow a sustainable infrastructure for a, a global brain initiative as we've been building. Very good, Judy and Tony. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and explaining about all this. I appreciate being here. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about the IBI, Richard. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been a, a pleasure. And thank you, Judy. See you, Tony. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is, there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.